This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. I've seen this problematic in both large and small breweries. It's attention to focus on detail kind of thing. This week on the show, we take a deep dive into the most important part of yeast cell counts that nobody ever talks about. Industry veteran Bill Macca is here to lead the way. There's a lot of places brewers can go to learn how to count yeast cells, but there's not a lot of resources out there in regards to obtaining and preparing yeast samples for the purpose of cell counts. Why is that and why is this topic so important? Why there is not a lot of resources relative to that is I, I think basically people just make the assumption people know how to get a yeast sample, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, trivial in that matter. And that's not always the case in different uh, tanks and uh, yeast sources present different problems for people uh, depending on the type of yeast they have and the process. Yeah, and sometimes you've got people that have just never done it before too, right? That's true. Uh, and there's a lot of new people out there. And and so uh, I think one of the most, if you can't get a homogeneous sample, it doesn't matter what it is, uh, and you're trying to process it analytically, uh, measurement-wise or you know counting-wise, then you, you're got a predictable problem or a potential predictable problem occurring. We're going to walk through an example procedure, but first, let's talk about the various possible sampling points. Okay. Uh, so, in this case, relative to yeast sampling, I'm talking about, um, you know, either primarily a yeast storage vessel, if you are storing your yeast, say, after cropping, or a yeast propagation system in which you're trying to... Uh, produce new yeast cells for the brewery. Both of those have uh, different aspects to how you want to sample them. And it also will depend on whether you have an agitator-based system or a pump loop system for either one. 
we've got a lot of brewers listening who work in breweries of all shapes and sizes, many of which don't really have stirred brinks or a pump loop system. A lot of brewers are storing yeast in kegs. Uh, there's also a lot of these mobile brinks that uh, don't have an ag- ad- don't have an agitator in them. They're basically small tanks on casters. And there are some folks who are still pitching cone to cone. What advice do you have for folks in those scenarios? Well, it, it, it depends. Again, let's let's uh, break this up into yeast um, storage or yeast management pieces versus yeast propagation. We'll, we can cover that on a, on a second piece. If you have a, say you have a keg and that's what you're storing it in, and there's some um, pretty nice systems out there for doing that nowadays. Um, some of them do have a agitator system to them and some do not. And the ones that do not, you need to make sure that you're somehow uh, moving that yeast and being able to uh, mix it uh, manually prior to sampling without causing it to overfoam. So obviously one of the keys is to keep it cold. And the other is not to, you know, go completely crazy with trying to shake it. So it's, it's a, that in itself is a, is a, is an art, but one of the keys to any of this is the fact that you have to, um, when you're pulling yeast from store, uh, from a uh, fermentation vessel, you first need to try to remove as much dissolved CO2 as possible, since dissolved CO2 is essentially a stressor on the yeast cells. So in that regard, I recommend that even if you're having a K-type system, that you modify it so that it has a gas release uh filter system on there that allows uh gas to escape mainly co2 but doesn't allow anything else to come into the cell so a one-way filter system um they sell those and some of them are made readily for these uh some of these kegs that are modified um with these agitator pieces to them uh, as far as a brink, a, a portable brink system, uh, it'd be good if you could sanitize a nice hose setup and cause that to have a recirculation pump on there to go back to that brink and just to be able to remove that CO2. You know, the problem with that is it becomes a hygiene piece relative to the hose. But you can try to remove by pump and looping that system in a portable brink system. Um, as far as um, propagation systems, they usually, you're not going to have a propagation system that doesn't have a pump loop or an agitator on there. I mean, it's going to be one or the other. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're going to have a very difficult time growing cells without being able to um, mix that solution so you can get the appropriate amount of air into it to grow yeast cells. All right, that makes sense. Anything else you want to say about obtaining a homogenous sample? If you're in an agitator-based system, um, you know you should probably turn on the agitator. You really shouldn't be having the agitator on first of all continuously in a yeast storage piece because there's the potential to mobilize glycogen which is your energy source for 
making unsaturated fatty acids and sterols for the yeast membrane. And that's, you know, so you want to minimize the air exposure. So you only want the yeast agitator usually on in a yeast storage vessel, say five minutes every hour just for temperature, uh, temperation, homogeneity. Um, but if you're going in and you're trying to grab a sample, you should turn on the agitator probably for about 10 minutes prior to obtaining the sample. And then, you know, with Nalgene-type bottles, usually plastic bottles in a brewery, uh, work better from different perspectives of safety and uh, GMP. But a Nalgene-type bottle, 500 mLs to 1,000, I would actually recommend 1,000 liters just to give yourself some headspace from the foaming. You should pull that after, and but you should, before you pull th- these bottles, these three sample bottles, you should go ahead and take one bottle and dump it because uh, on occasion, you're going to have a lot of solids build up at your sample port uh, just from settling and, and possibly troops. So you need to go ahead and clear out that uh, sample port. And usually a bottle is enough to, uh, you know, a one liter bottle is enough to do that. Um, after that, you should grab three bottles, making sure that uh, you have space left at the top, at least one to two inches for mixing as you uh, proceed forward for doing your, your uh, counting or your uh, measurement. So once you've got your homogenous sample, what do you do with it? Okay, so once you have your homogenous sample, you go back to the lab, you put all the samples in the fridge until you can get to them just to keep them cold. Uh, then you're going to mix every time you go to take a bottle and and use it for a, you know, whatever, a spin down solid or a yeast cell count. You're going to mix it by gently rocking it back and forth and pour the contents into a glass beaker. For example, uh, 250 mLs into a 500 mL beaker or 500 mLs into a, 200, uh, a liter beaker. And then you want to place a mag stir bar that's appropriate for that size beaker. Usually a medium-sized one will do. Place it on the stir plate for 5 to 10 minutes and agitate at a sufficient rate to ensure mixing, but you know, not so much that you're actually you know, sucking air in and, and causing the uh, contents of the beaker to, to uh, overfoam. Okay, so let's assume that maybe you've still got a little bit of gas left in that sample. Either you didn't come out of a uh, agitated brink, you came out of a keg instead, or or for whatever reason. Why don't you talk about the best practice for degassing that sample for counting purposes? Is that essentially going to happen just through stirring, or do we need to add some anti foam, or what other processes? What other options are there for degassing that sample if you still got to get rid of a little bit more CO two? Yeah, that's a good question. So. In a lot of instances, you're going to have a lot of CO2 still in your sample. And so there are a couple ways to deal with that. Um, One way is you can take uh, these plastic tripars that are probably a liter in size or, you know, 500 ml in size. Put your sample in there, go over a sink and, and start trying to decarb it like you would a beer sample. There is a couple problems with that. One is you can have, since the sample's not homogeneous to start with, you can lose some um, higher solids during the mixing over the, over the tripars. And 
the other piece is it's it's pretty darn messy and you can cause you know some over foaming if the sample is not cold enough so i it's not one i recommend i have seen people do that uh, my preferred method would be to place uh, two or three drops of antifoam c into your yeast slurry um, beaker with the uh, stir bar um, and actually take that and put it into a large plastic nalgene type beaker that has and put ice around the outside and just let that stir for about 15 minutes and usually that's sufficient to decarbonate a, a yeast sample do you have to worry about that anti-foam affecting your dilution i mean is, is you're essentially adding something to the yeast yeah usually couple drops it's not going to affect it relative to the volume that you've got there okay now we've got a homogenous degas sample on our stir plate it's stirring gently what's next okay so you want to be able to you know sample with some consistency so you want to do this if you do this every day every time it's just like you know everything else it becomes second nature and it, and it becomes a consistent process but say after you've got it degassed, you want to take a clean 10 ml um, wide bore pipette. And they sell these VWR and all these various suppliers sell these pipettes. You can position the, and, and something else you can do is you can, depending on how bad your tube is, which, which is another uh, discussion, but depending on how bad your tube is, you can snap the, on these plastic pipettes, you can't snap that wide bore tip off. Usually that's not needed, um, but you want to position a pipette between the wall of the beaker and the vortex created by the stir bar, say about halfway into the slurry volume. And then you're going to pipette the volume several times up and down. And that's mainly to make sure that the tube is not blocking the pipette tip. Then you want to wipe the outside of the um, pipette. And then, um, in a previous life, this is uh, what we used to do. We take it 10 mLs and put in the 90 mLs of phosphate buffered saline in what is called a uh, 100 mL milk dilution bottle. And these milk dilution bottles have lines on the side. Uh, these were used initially by the dairy industry, and they've been incorporated into science labs uh, all over the place. It's but, basically just a, a volumetric uh, flask that has a that has a wide mouth on it, right? Yes, and I mean, and it has a screw top on the on yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're cheap. They're made by Kymex and a few others. And again, they can be purchased at VWR or, or any of these science um, scientific supply houses. And then you want to rinse that pipette several times once you're in there to uh, into that milk dilution bottle uh, with the phosphate buffered saline. You want to rinse it up several times just to make sure you've got everything off the inside of that pipette. And at that, at that point, um, you've got a 1 to 10 dilution. It's 10 in the 90. And then you can proceed, depending if it's a yeast storage vessel or a propagation vessel, with further dilutions. So uh, you, the important caveat is you want to minimize the number of dilutions you do because potentially there's a 10% error for every time um, you go into another dilution. And that's, that becomes multiplicative over time. 
there's no one size fits all dilution factor because it depends on, as you said, how thick or thin the slurry you need to count is. But it's common to hear recommendations of one to 100 or one to 200. Just how many cells do we really want to be looking at on those grids? What's, what's going to give us the best results? Yeah, if you're trying to do a hemocytometer, I mean, you're, you really don't want more than, you know, there's a max and, there, and there's a min. And the min is about 100 total cells before you can even consider. And that's overall 25 grids. So the other is uh, for the max is you, you don't want really more than 20 to 25 cells per large um, grid uh, because it becomes uh, a point where your eyes cannot count all those yeast cells that are just, uh, you know, piled up on one on top of another. And you don't know if you're seeing one on top of another or not at that point. So there's, yeah, you want to be somewhere between, you know, 100 and 400 some odd cells for the entire hemocytometer. Coming up. If you're stirring in a non-climate controlled environment, you're going to potentially increase the dead cells while you're working. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This Master Brewers Podcast is proudly sponsored by Barna Mechanical, a full-service design-build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. We partner with some of the best craft brewers in the U.S. to ensure the great beer they brew is what their customers get in every glass, bottle, can, or keg. You know beer. We know breweries. Additional support provided by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. There's only a few things left on the Master Brewers calendar for 2018. The annual District St. Louis Holiday Party is December 7th. Also on December 7th, you can catch the webinar on beverage can production. The District Eastern Canada Christmas Party is December 18th in Montreal. And it's not too early to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. I can't wait to see what decorations Tressa comes up with. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. Some sources recommend using disposable one milliliter transfer pipettes and 10 milliliter centrifuge tubes or something similar for cereal dilutions. 
Does it really matter if it's one milliliter of slurry and nine milliliters of water versus 10 milliliters of slurry and 90 milliliters of water? You know, the, the, you have to think of it as the more sample I can get, the more accurate my final count will be. So if you can get 10 mLs, and, and then the other piece is when you're doing the one and you have trube, it's going to be hard to pull into that pipette versus 10 mLs. Yeah. So it, 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 in, in our case, in a previous life, it always made more sense to get the larger sample with the larger pipette. Yeah, I, I remember struggling for quite a, a long time before I realized there was such a thing as wide mouth pipettes. So, um, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, as you just discussed, we we know that there's potential for error during each dilution or transfer step, and we know that any error is multiplicative. So, why do most folks recommend serial dilutions rather than just doing a, a big single step dilution? You know, that's a good question. I think the problem with the one step dilution is your your accuracy i think suffers because you're taking a smaller sample to begin with and then you're adding it to a larger volume i mean you know it it makes a lot more sense to get that larger sample to start with i think that's primarily the main reason what about diluting by weight. A lot of craft brewers are doing this and like it because it eliminates fighting with gas bubbles and trube or thick slurries and pipettes. And it probably eliminates some error if the brewer isn't experienced with the nuances of pipettes or volumetric glassware or simply doesn't have that equipment on hand. What's the problem with diluting grams of slurry with grams of water? Uh, Could that be a better option for some brewers? I do know some of my clients use that and i do know that in a previous life uh we had a uh, pilot brewery that used that method um i think one of the drawbacks to that is uh by weight is you're you're not having yeast exclusivity you're having the inclusivity of to- of uh dissolved and suspended solids and so i think it throws off potentially throws off um, what that actual pitch is going to be based on weight. Although I do know people have done it and they have tables set up and somewhere along the line, they have calculated uh, some kind of an extrapolation table to actual cell counts. But I think the consistency suffers somewhat in that regard. But I do know people that do it and they get by with doing it that way. Okay. Talk about cell clumping and the options for dealing with it. Yeah, cell clumping is a, is a potential issue uh, depending on your uh, yeast strain and the process. But um, a good way to declump cells is to add a uh, small amount of uh, dilute acid organic acid to the to the suspension before you count it if you're having clumping issues so i'm talking a pipette drop or two of something like 0.1 normal sulfuric acid and it also helps clean up any trube that might be on the slide 
we haven't talked about staining. Uh, there are a few interesting Ask the Brewmasters threads on that topic over at community.mbaa.com, including some dialogue about how storage containers, uh, storage container material affects results. So methylene blue or methylene violet, what's better and how much should we be using? Or is there something else we should consider for assessing viability in the small brewery? That's another good question. Um, you know, Catherine Smart and her group did a lot of work uh, with the methylene violet. And it apparently works well for, you know, most of those people that I know that have used it as far as my clients. My, my other take on this is, though, we've, at my previous life, used methylene blue forever. But there's methylene blue and there's methylene blue. So, and I'm not trivializing this either, but um, we used a formulation that essentially was a phosphate buffered methylene blue. Um, and it's from an old German, I don't have it in front of me, but it's an old German reference from like 1920 um, physiology journal. And it was called Think Cools. F-I-N-K dash K-U-H-L-E-S. Now, you can buy methylene blue in volume from all the various scientific um, product houses. I'm just not sure on that formulation. So in my hands, methylene blue, well, let, let's, let's step back a moment. Methylene blue um, is only really considered accurate, say, for up to about 95 or down to about 95% um, viability. Below that, you start having questions. And so it depends if you're getting consistently high dead cells. Uh, Methylene blue is not going to be accurate. It's going to underestimate. What you have to do, though, is either do a benchmark slide culture technique or use a fluorescent stain such as MGANS. Both of those correlate very well, slide culture and MGANS, with each other. And they show that methylene blue, when it gets below 95 to 92%, starts underestimating. So it depends on your brewery's consistent uh, viability of your yeast cells. But I would say methylene violet is probably not going to do much better for you uh, under those circumstances. So under uh, conditions of a phosphate buffer to handle the, you know, if there's any uh, pH changes, uh, the faint pools methylene blue seem to always work well for us. We didn't get a chance to talk about an important distinction among volumetric pipettes. Tell us about TD versus TC. Yeah. So when you're buying regular pipettes, so you're not going to see this when you're talking Eppendorf, but when you're buying a regular pipette, you're going to see designations such as TD, which is to deliver and is the most common, and then TC, which is to contain. Um, you need to know which ones you're using for consistency's sake. And for consistency's sake, you need to stay with one or the other. But if they're labeled TD to deliver, 
um, they're going to deliver the volume stated on the pipette. So there's always going to be a small amount of liquid inside there after you pipette. So you don't want to do anything like try to blow it out. Uh, you just want to leave it in there. Um, TCs, they're you know, labeled to, to, con to contain, and they're designed to contain the volume stated on the pipette. So in that case, you know, you can blow it out or whatever. A lot of small breweries don't have a nice climate-controlled lab to do this work in. If you're a small brewery and you're degassing your sample or homogenizing it on a stir plate out in the brewery warehouse, do you need to be concerned about things like evaporation? Yes, you have to be concerned about, well, not only evaporation, but just the heat impact itself. Because if you're stirring in a non-climate-controlled environment, you're going to potentially increase the dead cells while you're working. I mean, so one, you'd have to work relatively rapidly to make sure you're getting not an increase in dead cells. The other piece to that is you don't want to make a bunch of dilutions. I'm not saying that people are doing this, but it, you, know, you don't want to make a bunch of dilutions and have them sitting there. Um, because then you're going to increase your dead cell count. So you need to try to get to whatever is the coolest place in your facility to be able to set this up to do it. Makes sense. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about loading hemocytometers. Some brewers pipette a drop onto the chamber, then add the cover slip on top. Others wet the rails to lock down the cover slip and then load via capillary action. And some hemocytometers have V-slashes to facilitate filling via capillary action. Some of these methods have to be better than others. What do you say? Yeah, so the recommendation generally for hemocytometer is the Neubauer, N-E-U-B-A-U-R-E-R -E -E types. And they will have the grid set up um, where you can, you know, get the right visual and they will also have usually the v notches a couple of uh, points to that, that, that good i'm glad you brought that up you need to make sure one of the the, the things that again is a is a uh seems very simple but is can give you headaches is if you don't clean that hemocytometer and hemocytometer cover um scrupulously i mean to the point where, you know, you're using a, like a glass cleaner that you've dissolved or have a liquid, you know, Knox, liquid Knox cleaner that you can utilize to make sure you degreased it properly in the hot water, rinsed it. And then you don't want to handle uh, the cover slip, but by the edges so that you don't get any grease from your fingertips onto that cover slip. And when you're adding, say you do have a V-notch and you are uh, adding, you can use capillary uh, movement with a pasture pipette. The thing on that is it takes a little practice. It took me, uh, you know, a few weeks or months to get that down in my early days. But you need to make sure that you have flow that comes in on a consistent basis. If you've go to fill it and you have, say it only goes halfway into the chamber, um, you, you just need to start over again because it's going to be, um, it's based on an equal uniform flow over that grid. And so if you go to try to add on, it's going to potentially uh, make your results um, 
inaccurate. So you want to make sure you have a, a nice flow and you don't want to overfill the chamber into the channels on either side because then that's going to give you an erroneous count also. So do you do you think it's uh would you say it's better to put a drop on the um on the chamber and then add your cover slip on top of it versus filling uh with the capillary effect? No, I would I would have the clean cover slip on top and just, you know, hold the hemocytometer on either side and just you, you know, fill it um with the pasture pipette. You know, I've also seen people use um bulbs on their pasture pipettes, the small bulbs. And if you don't have real good dexterity and you're fighting this, there's there's no problem with that. Again, as long as you don't overfill the chamber and you have just a smooth flow into uh, the chamber. Is it worth talking about any new technologies? You know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there with solometers, and I've seen even some smartphone apps recently. And anything you want to talk about in regards to those? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the solometers are 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 good. I mean, they're they're pretty accurate, and but it's a, again, it's a matter of just like the the hemocytometer. It's a matter of getting a good homogeneous sample prior to utilizing it. And that uses a very small sample size. So you have to even be, in my estimation, even have a more homogeneous sample. Um, there's some dyes that they have in there like oxanol. That's a uh, membrane, transmembrane potentiometry um, dye that if the yeast cell is uh, healthy and live, it's going to exclude the dye. And if it isn't, it's going to take up the dye. So there's some pretty good dyes and in, in, in in these uh, cellometers are pretty accurate. The only thing I would caution people on is if you're in high croisoning or you're doing propagation and you're looking at, uh, well, you should be looking at the budding potential uh, or budding index, you're you're potentially going to have some uh, errors uh, based on the algorithms if they've been set up properly or not in those instruments to account for buds. So I've always cautioned my clients uh, if you're doing if you're in high croisoning, um, you know, twenty four to forty eight hours into a well zero to forty eight. Uh, depending on your product, into a fermenter, um, or you're in propagation. Um, I, I would use caution unless um, Solometer has worked out the algorithms to account for the buds. That was Bill Macca here on the Master Brewers Podcast. He's made quite a few contributions over the years, so type MACA, M-A-C-A, into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com to find Bill's TQ articles and presentations. Also, check out the show notes for links to some of the Ask the Brewmasters threads we mentioned earlier. Hey, remember the Belgian beer book that Sten Mertens and Jan Stencils talked about on episode 101, The Yeasts of Tomorrow? Well, great news. It's now available in the Master Brewers Bookstore. Just go to mbaa.com slash store and type Belgian beer into the search bar to get your copy today. Countdown, I'm moving too fast. And then I hit on the ground. Just like that one day when we came around that. Since there's that one thing that I should have told.
big. 